Good morning. We're going to be in Galatians chapter 5 as I continue to preach through the book of Galatians. If you want to turn there, I will pray. Father, I thank you, God, for this morning and just um, your blessings to us. I thank you for Paul, his faithfulness to bring truth in a world where it is so often rejected. Um, I, I pray, God, that we would all learn to defend the faith better. Uh, we know that you have put a special calling on certain ones to really go into even academia and places and defend it. But it is the call on each of us to defend your truth, to defend our faith. And I pray that you would encourage us and teach us and equip us to do that. God, I thank you for our singers and our song service this morning, the truths that I heard in the songs, the worship that I heard as the congregation sings. What a blessing it is to come together and worship you. God, now I ask you as we look at this fifth chapter of Galatians, God, that you would take this message and you would own it, that you would deliver it by the power of your spirit. God, that you would get glory for yourself, that our goal, that our desire would be to glorify you, that my desire would be to glorify you, Lord, and and that you would teach us and help us to stand fast in liberty. In Jesus' name, amen. So Galatians chapter 5, verse 1 says, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. And so, remember, anytime you see therefore in the Scripture, it's the start of a chapter, but it's a continuation of a thought. Anytime you see therefore, you need to look to see what the therefore is there for. Right? What's he talking about? Therefore, you, you cannot dissect, you cannot cut this at the chapter mark. He's saying, because of this, stand fast in the liberty which is in Christ. Because of what? Well, if you back up to the last sermon, back in chapter 4, you remember we talked about true freedom. Where is true freedom? Where is true free will? And it comes in stages, and that's what I want to remind you of this morning. The freedom comes in stages. It comes the freedom of opportunity to do what we can, the freedom of ability to do what we desire, and the freedom of desire to do what will bring us unending joy. And you figure those those three things, and then you look at the state of mankind... We're not free at all on our own merits. It's kind of like Paul was talking about logical fallacies this morning. And he said, you'll hear it a lot. You can do anything you set your mind to. Really? Is that true? No. Why? You don't have the opportunity to do anything you set your mind to. I want to set my mind to go into the White House, sit down in the Oval Office and visit with President Trump and talk to him about some of the stuff that's going on. I think I could be a help. Can I do that? No. No matter how much I set my mind to it, I don't have that opportunity. Unless he calls me up, I'm still waiting on that call. 
right? No matter who the president is, none of them ever call me, right? Still waiting. The ability. I think I do have the ability to do that if I was given the opportunity, but I don't have the opportunity. But what if I set my mind to be an NFL football player? I'm going to do it. No, I'm going to do it. I've known people that have, I see it a lot with young kids. They got their minds set. They're convinced they're going to play in the NBA. And I fully believe in their mind they're convinced that. They got their mind set to it. And even the opportunity is there for them to try to make it, right? They play in high school. They're good enough. Play in college. I mean, the opportunity is there. But they don't have the ability. Generally, five foot one is not going to get you to the NBA, right? Six foot two, 230 pounds was not big. I played line. That wasn't going to get me to the, to the NFL. I did not have the ability. So my free will is not my free will. And then the third thing, the freedom of desire to do what will bring us unending joy. We, as humans, don't have that. And the reason is because our desire, naturally speaking, is inclined to sin. And sin gives pleasure for a season but it does not bring unending joy. We all know that. If you've been on this earth very long, you've already seen the effects of sin. You've seen the effects of your pleasure for a season, and the end of it was detrimental. Right? So we don't have free will at all as humans. We're born into sin. We don't have the, we don't have the freedom of opportunity that we wish we had. We don't have the freedom of ability And we certainly don't have the freedom of desire. Oh, but when Christ comes into your life, He actually grants you free will. How does He do that? He changes your will and your desires to Himself, which is the only one who can bring you unending joy. And that's what He says, Therefore, because of Christ... Because of all of these things, because you don't have freedom, but if you have it in Christ, you've been granted freedom. Therefore, stand fast in that liberty by which Christ has made us free. That's why you stand fast. He says, stand fast. Do not waver from the liberty. Why would we want to in the first place? You know, when Jesus was talking to Peter, and you remember when he said, will you also leave? What was Peter's answer? He said, Lord, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Why would we leave Jesus and go back to the law? Why would we leave Jesus and go back to Moses? Why, where would we go? And that's what he's saying here. He's like, stand fast in this freedom. Why would you want to go anywhere else? There's nowhere else to turn. If you turn away from Christ alone, then you're turning to bondage. You're turning to slavery. You're leaving the promised land and going back to Egypt and putting the shackles back on your arms and on your legs and getting the whip put back to your back. Who would do that? Do you want to bend over? And work with a whip to your back? 
That's what turning to the law or turning to a self-righteousness or turning to a works apart from Christ does. And then look in the verse. It says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty. Where does it come from? By which Christ has made us free. Who made us free? Jesus. By Himself. With no help from us. Not Christ plus your works. Not Christ plus your church. Not Christ plus a prayer that you prayed. An aisle that you walked. Not Christ plus baptism. Not Christ plus anything else. Jesus alone has set us free. He grants us the liberty. Turn over to Acts chapter 4. Don't take my word for this. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Actually, yeah, verse 12. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we are saved. No other name. It's by Christ alone. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. We quote this a lot. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. Titus 3, 5 says, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. It's not by our works. It's not by anything else. It's not by anyone else. Not by any other name. It's Jesus and Him alone. Turn over to 1 John. Chapter 5, verse 11 says, And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. That's it. It's in Christ. It's in the Son. In Him alone. Look at the next verse there. In verse 13, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. So if you believe in the name of the Son of God, he says this, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. You may know. There is a lot of people. We go out on the street, talk to different people, and I ask them, if you died, do you know where you go? Would you go to heaven? I don't know. I hope so. I'm trying. That's not what God's plan is. God's plan is for you to know. John said, I'm writing this so that you will know. If you believe in Christ, you should know without a shadow of a doubt, if you died today, you would go to heaven. That's what John said. That's what Christ taught. 
That's what Paul is saying here in Galatians. Why? Because you've been freed from that burden of sin. Christ is the one that gives us this liberty. And Paul is saying, stand fast on that. Don't waver from that. Then back in Galatians, at the last part of the verse, he says, do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. And two things I want to point out here. The first thing is there is no middle ground. Okay, there is no partly works, partly Christ, partly grace, partly works. It it doesn't work that way. There is no middle ground. You're either standing in the complete liberty of Christ or you are in bondage. That's it. That's all the Bible leaves room for. You're either in the promised land or you're back in Egypt. You're either with Christ or you're against Him. So that's what we want to make sure of here, that you understand where you stand today. And if you're on the wrong side of that line, we want you to be on the right side of that line. We want you to be in liberty. If you still have shackles on your hands, we want, I want, to show you how to get them off. And if you haven't noticed, it's in Christ. Him alone. The second thing here is, he says a yoke of bondage. And different translations say it different, but I'm, I'm in the New King James this morning. It says a yoke of bondage. And the book of Galatians is dealing with people who are trying to intermingle the law of Moses back into Christianity. Okay, that's what it's dealing with. A lot of the old time law. But it's very clear as you read through the entire book and take it in its context that if you try to replace the free gift of Christ with any form of commandment, any sort of works for salvation, you've been entangled with the yoke of bondage. And that's what he's saying. Um, you don't want this yoke. You know what a yoke is, right? It's the big, heavy leather thing they would put on animals to pull a plow. And Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Take my yoke upon you. It wasn't a yoke of bondage. Why? Because it's free. Because Jesus is the one pulling the plow. And you get to go along for the ride. But the yoke of bondage is heavy. And it's got a whip behind it driving you to pull it. Look at verse 2. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. He is not talking about just the act of circumcision here, but rather the dependence on it for salvation. If, when you go on in verse 4, you can see he's talking about circumcision represents the law in this case. And actually, in Galatia, what was being taught was the Greeks who had not been circumcised, the Judaizers who were coming in were telling them, you have to be circumcised. And Paul is saying, if you're doing that and you're doing it to earn favor with God, you're stepping away from Christ. Circumcision becomes the representative here for keeping the law. In other words, you're putting your faith in your circumcision. You're putting your faith in your flesh, in the thing that you have done physically. And if you do that, Christ will profit you nothing. You want to earn it? You want to earn your salvation? Then go earn it. See how that goes. 
See how that works out for you. Has anybody ever tried that? I have. You're a sinner who stands guilty before a holy God, and you've been offered free redemption on the basis of Christ's merits, and you're going to go try to earn it yourself? You know how it worked for me? I had this bar set. I'm going to do good today. This week, I'm going to do good. And whatever it was, I had lots of little rules for myself in my mind. I didn't talk about it, but it is in my mind. And I would set out to achieve those rules. Maybe it was I was going to pray a certain amount. Maybe it was I was going to read my Bible. I was going to go to church. I was going to avoid sinful things. And guess what happened? I'm shooting here. Fall short. What I do, I have the ability. I'm making it up as I go anyway. Lower the bar. Fall short. Lower the bar. It continues on and on until the bar's so low, you're living worse than anybody who claims to be an atheist. And all of a sudden, you're going, I don't understand this at all. And then you turn to God's Word and you look at Jesus you start looking at his life, you start looking at what perfection really is, and you go, wow, I didn't even start out with the bar high enough. I couldn't even hit my own standard, much less even come close to hitting the standard of Christ. And I'm going to try to earn my salvation. Paul's saying, hey, it's either you do it or not. James said, if you're guilty of one, breaking one point of the law, you're guilty of the whole thing. What works, that, that works all the way through. So if you want to go earn your salvation, go earn it. But guess what? You're going to fall short. You're going to be left lacking. And you're going to go to hell. Because we have one plan that is going to work. There's one name under heaven which men will be saved. His name is Jesus. He lived the perfect life. His standards were there. And he lived them. Tempted in the wilderness for 40 days by Satan himself. You know, I doubt if any of us really are important enough for Satan himself to come. He sends his minions to us because we're weak. Satan himself, Lucifer, went toe-to-toe with Jesus. He was tempted in every way and yet without sin. Perfect in every way. Can you imagine a four-year-old that never dishonored his parents? That's incredible. If you've raised kids, you know it's going to happen. But not that one. He never even... I mean, if he, he had brothers. He had, he had siblings. And he never sinned in a squabble with them. He was perfect. And he's offering us that perfection. And all we have to do is believe in him. And you're going to try to do it your own? Let me know how that goes. Let me know how that goes. Verse 3. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. If at any point you want to try to earn your salvation, you're going to have to earn the whole salvation. Why? Why is it that it's all or none? Well, because what Paul is saying here is the minute you start adding your own works to be saved is the minute that Christ will profit you nothing. But the minute that you turn it all over to him is the minute that he profits you 
everything. Why is that? Because that's how God gets the most glory. That's how Jesus gets the most glory. And He is the only one who is worthy of that glory. Verse 4 says, You have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. And there's where we see, he's talking about the justification by law. And it's not just the law of Moses. That's kind of what he was dealing with in this case. But the principles apply for any law, any type of righteousness you can conjure up on your own. Um, he's talking about. So it's not the act of circumcision in itself. If you, you know, circumcision is practiced widely now in the United States as a sanitary thing. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with doing it as a salvation-based merit. You can say the same thing about anything. Anything that you're trusting in would be a law. Anything that you're trusting in to save you would be a law. I believe we're seeing some new things happening now that could easily become another gospel, which is not another gospel. The way Paul worded it at the first of Galatians. I'm amazed that you so soon have started trusting in this other gospel, which is not another. We're seeing it, I'm afraid, with some of the social justice movements. I'm not, I, I mean, I'm convinced that as Christians, if you don't say the right things that fits their narrative then you're going to be considered non-Christian. I think it's coming. I think it's already happening within a lot of churches, probably. It's another gospel coming in. If you really want to be a Christian, you need to be out there marching in protest. No, I don't see that in Scripture. Scripture doesn't tell me to march in protest of the social injustices that are going on. Scripture says to stand fast in the liberty that is in Christ. And it says, go you therefore and preach the gospel. Go you therefore and make disciples. That's what Scripture says to do. Baptizing them. Teaching them to be separate from the world. But we're seeing this stuff come up, so I'm afraid that we're, that we're, Galatians is gonna have, take on a whole new Application. The meaning doesn't change, but the application could. So it's not the act of circumcision itself. It's not the act of protest that's wrong. But if you're protesting because you feel like it somehow earns you favor with God, then you've just entered into this same legalistic mindset. And you can think through your heart, and you can think through your mind right now, What is it that you're trusting in? And it's possible for Christians to lean one way or the other. It is not possible for them to leave, but it is possible for them to get their mind set in the wrong place. And so even for you Christians, I want to challenge you to think about what are you putting your trust in and make sure that it's in Christ. So if you're thinking, if somebody asked you, if you died today, where would you go? And you say heaven and What's the answer to why? And in your heart, if it's anything other than Christ died for me, 
then you've missed the mark. Then you need to repent. You need to bring your mind back to Jesus. And it's easy to point to your good works in that case. Well, I spend a lot of time. I'm always in church. I pray every morning. I, I always do my quiet time. I spend time in the Word. Maybe I'm helping with the nursing home. I'm doing prison ministry. I'm doing all these wonderful works. You know, when, when Jesus, when you talk about that, um, I think it's Matthew 7. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, haven't we done this? Haven't we done this? Haven't we done this? Prophesied in your name. In your name worked miracles. In your name cast out demons. In your name we've done many wonderful works. And what does he say? Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. One version says, depart from me, you practicers of lawlessness. I never knew you. What is it that they were missing? I mean, what is bad is is doing miracles in Jesus' name. All these things, all these wonderful things we're doing. What is what happened there? The answer should have been. But Lord, you died for us. All of those works are a great thing. And I pray to God that his people are striving to do them. That's the application. We should be striving to do wonderful works but not to try to earn favor with God. We should be doing wonderful works because we have favor with God. If you have children, you can kind of understand this. Have you ever had your kids just do something for you just because they loved you? There is no better reason. Now, they can do things and be... You know, say they want to go mow the lawn, and they want to mow the lawn because they're trying to kind of butter you up, and they want to go somewhere later, or they want something, or and you're still proud of them. You're still glad they mow the lawn. But how much more do you love it when they say, I just wanted to help you. just wanted to do it for you. We have we we take great pleasure in that with our own kids. How much more the one who actually deserves the love when we do things just because we love him and just because he loved us. That's why we do good things. So good works are not bad. But if they're done to earn heaven, they become bad. They become offensive to God. I'll tell you more why later. But the motive of the heart really does matter. Remember, God sees the heart. He doesn't just see the action. That's where us as parents, we can still be kind of proud of our kids when they do something good, even though their heart motive may have been bad. Because we don't see the heart. We look for the good, but God does see the heart. And if the motive was selfish, it's no good. It's not good. It doesn't glorify Him. But if the motive was from love, then it does. And then he says, he says, you have become estranged from Christ, or severed from Christ. Separated. And it says, and you've fallen from grace. And this is an interesting verse. This is a, this is a controversial verse, a little bit. It's a little bit tricky um, in how you handle it. 
Sometimes it's used to say someone can lose their salvation. Uh, That is what we would call isolating that scripture. Because the entire book of Galatians says it's completely in Christ and him alone and his work. So if you can lose your salvation, then that would mean the work of Christ has failed. You've got to look at the entire book. You've got to look at the entire Bible. Um, the truth is, the epistle was written to wake up the true believers and cause them to cling to Christ. If anyone didn't, if they were truly severed from Christ, if this didn't wake them up, then they had never had Christ. They had never known him. How do I know this? Look at Romans chapter 10. Romans 10, verse 3 says, For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. Look at that again. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, what are they doing? They're seeking to establish their own righteousness. They have not submitted to the righteousness of God. If they had submitted to the righteousness of God, they would not be ignorant of God's righteousness. They would be a part of it. And then look at verse 4. It says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So if you're still supporting the law, if you're still depending on the law for salvation, you have not met Christ. And if this, if this word from Paul doesn't wake you up and you continue down that way, then you never had grace in the first place. You never understood it. To fall from grace is to not have had grace imputed. And then you're going to fall from that. I mean, God said, no one can pluck you out of my hand. It simply means that the grace of God has been put before you and you understood its concept and turned from it. That's what it means to fall from grace in this context. Now, we have a confusing of the term because it's used in the world all the time. They've fallen from grace, which means they have, they were, when you use it in the world, it's like somebody had great favor here. And then they did something wrong and they've fallen from grace. Businesses use it. Parents use it. That kind of thing. But that's not what the scripture is talking about. It never says that they had great favor. It's like it's kind of like they were reaching for it or the grace was presented to it. And they fell away from it. They turned away from it. Because they didn't like it. Because they still had that self-righteous attitude. The point of this Verse, the point of this scripture is you can't have it both ways. You cannot say you have grace, but hold on to a little bit of your own righteousness. If you are trying to earn God's favor by any means, then you don't have grace. It is a separation from the one who is truly righteous. Now look at verse 5. He says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty... By which Christ, wait, for we, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. So, in verse 4, he's talking about you. He says, you, 
You have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. Then in verse 5, he changes that to we. So he's talking about two different people groups. The you are the unsaved. They may have looked like they were saved at one point. They may have acted like they believed grace at one point, but they were still trusting in their own righteousness. But now he says, for we, the believers, the true believers, the one who have put their faith in Christ and submitted to him, for we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. Wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. We've already had righteousness imputed to us, okay? By the Holy Spirit, it has been imputed to us, and now it is by Him, by that Holy Spirit, by God, we wait for that righteousness to be completed in our flesh. And it says, wait for the hope of righteousness. And this is another term that's tough in this in our time, because hope is used wrongly in the world. The definition of hope is like, oh, I just hope something good happens or whatever that is. The biblical definition of hope is a confident expectation in what God has promised. So here he is promising us that full righteousness will come by faith. We have it spiritually imputed on us. So when God looks down at one who is under the atonement of Christ, he does not see Cody. He does not see Justin. He sees the righteousness of Christ who's covering me. When he looked down on the cross and he saw Christ on the cross, for a moment in time he did not see Jesus' righteousness. What did he see? The sins. He saw the sins of those who would believe. He saw the sins of his people put on Christ. So it's the great exchange is what we call that. And because of that, he's allowed, he's, he's put his righteousness on us. But yet, we're still in this flesh. We still have a problem with sin, don't we? I do. Right? We still struggle with this sin in this flesh every day. And that's what Paul's talking about here. The hope of righteousness by faith. There is coming a time that your fullness of righteousness will be granted to you and your flesh will be redeemed and you will no longer have to fight against that sin. You'll have that righteousness indwelling completely in the flesh as well. The Holy Spirit enables us. He lives inside us now and He gives us the ability to hope for that. He gives us the ability to wait for that. He gives us enough ability to hold on until this flesh is redeemed. That's what He's talking about there. And then in verse 6 he says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything, but faith working through love. And I thought this, if circumcision, circumcision was a sign given by God to Abraham, a sign of the covenant. It was commanded for him to do it. It was commanded for him and his household to do it. And they followed that. It was given by God. And Paul's saying, that sign doesn't avail anything. I thought, how much less are good works? I mean, this is a covenant sign given from God, and Paul says it means nothing. And yet we're going to make up some new ones. They're somehow going to trump that? No. Your efforts, the law, your self-righteousness, your good intentions, your virtue signaling... 
Your attempt at righteousness avails nothing. What does avail something? Faith working through love. In Ephesians 2, where did the faith come from? It was a gift of God. The faith that you have, the love that you have, everything good that you have is a gift from God working through love, working through the Holy Spirit, he, or the Holy Spirit working through you, rather, avails something. Why is this? It almost seems like these sermons through Galatians are very similar, doesn't it not? That's because they are. That's because Paul's writing is very similar. He is hammering home a point, and I'm very thankful that he has. Why is this such a big deal? I want you to turn to Isaiah 53. I want to show you why... Clinging to our own righteousness is so offensive to Jesus and thus was so offensive to Paul and should be so offensive to us. Look at Isaiah 53. He says, Who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Verse 3. This is talking about Christ. This is long before Jesus came on the scene as a man physically, but it describes him to a T. Only God could do this. He says in verse 3, He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Look at verse 5. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. He was bruised for our iniquities. When he, we say it, it's so cliche. I'll go on the street and I'll, I'll go through the law and I'll say, Do you know what God has done for you so you don't have to go to hell? Oh yeah, he died on a cross. They get the right answer. But you can see in their face and in the tone of their voice, they do not understand what that means. Hey, he died on a cross. They've heard it so many times. We've all heard it so many times. We forget what it means. It's the God of glory died on a cross. Have we forgot that? We're talking about the Creator. The One who gave you life. He submitted Himself to the creation The very one, I love that spoken word Dylan does so much. The spit that they spat on him, he created. He created the glands that made it. He knew when the tree sprouted that it would grow into a great tree and be cut down and hewn into a cross and he would be nailed on it. 
He put the iron ore in the ground that they would fashion the nails out of. And they drove it through his hands and through his feet. And that was the easy part. Because while he was on there, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I'm telling you right now, we cannot understand. It will take eternity in hell for us to understand how bad that was. That's why it's offensive when you say, I'm going to add my prayers in the morning to this. May it never be. Your prayers are futile apart from Christ. The only reason you even get to pray is because of Jesus. And if you don't have Him, if you don't have this freedom, if you're not standing fast on this freedom that Christ has, your prayers are to a false God. When He was on that cross, the reason it's so offensive to Him, when we try to add anything to His work, it's because when He was on there, He said, it is finished. That was the exact terminology that they would use when somebody paid a complete debt and there was no debt left to be paid. Paid in full. So when you go to try to add something to that, you are saying that Christ was not enough. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was not enough. I gotta add something. I gotta add something. I gotta keep hold of something. And that's just false. And it takes away from His glory. And that's why it's so important that Paul harps on it in Galatians. He bore the wrath of God. It was satisfied on Him. And so when you say, yeah, but, but, but you have to do this, you have to do that, or I did this, or he did that, what you're really saying is, I just don't think it's enough. I know you may not have ever thought about it that way. You may not have ever thought, I don't think Christ is enough. You may not think it that clearly, but that's what it's doing. Anytime you add to it, you're saying, well, he was wrong. It wasn't finished or he was lying because if it was finished it was finished let those thoughts leave our minds repent of that self-righteousness and bow your knee to Christ today bow your knee to him and, and then consider this all of those things are true and it truly is paid in full We did nothing to earn it. We did nothing to deserve it. It is a grace that has been granted, extended to us on His merit. Why? Two reasons. First and foremost, it was for His glory. He demonstrates His attributes of mercy and grace through that. God is glorified. Above any other being, God is glorified. And number two... Because He loves you. Why? I have no idea. Why He loves me, I have absolutely no idea. Because He chose to. And that is glorious. And that glorifies Him even further. That He could love a wretch 
like me. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, I thank, I thank you, God, that your gospel is glorious and that you love the unlovable. And I pray, Lord, that my heart would be transformed, that my heart would be turned away from self-righteousness because I know it dwells there. I know there's times when I want to try to add to your work and I want to try to please you. And I, I base my relationship with you on my performance. And I know you never do that. And I pray, God, that you would conform my will to yours. You would conform my heart to yours and all those who are here. God, that we would be conformed to Christ. In his name I pray. Amen.